what a pleasure it is to see all of you here today and to worship with you on this Lord's Day that he has given to us. I do beg your pardon if I cough a little bit or my voice is a bit weak because I'm still recovering from a cold, but I trust that we will get through this sermon together well. Uh, our reading of God's Word this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Uh, please turn with me there as I read it. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of our God. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demos. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul and the epistles that he wrote to churches all around the Mediterranean Lord and that you inspired him to write these letters, that they are useful for us and point us towards you, and that even passages that might, on their first reading, seem to be only relevant to the time and place, Lord, that in reality all of these words were inspired and all of these words are meant to bless and to benefit your church throughout the world, throughout history. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we study it today, that you would help us to understand it, and that you would use it to minister to our hearts, to cause us to repent of our sins,
to be encouraged in our difficulties and to cause our eyes to be lifted up to you and to see your glory and to love you more. Father, we pray all these things in the Son of your, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon today on this passage will have three points. Uh, firstly, since this is the last sermon in a long and intermittent series on Colossians, we will take a lightning tour through the rest of the letter to the Colossians, recapping what Paul has already written to the church in Colossae and gaining context for the last portion of this letter. Secondly, we will look at verses 7 through 14, where we will see that despite how it looks at the first glance, this is not just a list of names, but conveys important and eternal truths. And finally, in verses 15 through 18, we will see Paul's final instructions to the Colossians. Now, most scholars agree that Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians after Epaphras, the founding pastor of the church there in Colossae, came to Rome and to Paul in his imprisonment and told him about the false teaching that was afflicting the church in Colossae. We see frequently throughout the New Testament how Paul will react to news of false teaching in churches by taking up his pen and writing against that false teaching to preserve the church against heresy and sometimes even sternly rebuking churches for straying from the path of the gospel. Yet in this letter, Paul takes a more gentle and more strategic approach. He begins in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, by thanking God for the Colossians and praising them for their faith and for their love for one another. He then proceeds to praise Epaphras and his ministry in Colossae, showing solidarity with him and making it clear that if anyone had doctrinal differences with him, they also had doctrinal differences with Paul the Apostle. In order to show that he, Paul, really does care for the Colossians as people, he then assures them that they are constantly in his prayers and that he has great hopes for them as a church, that they would partake in all of the fullness that Christ has to offer. Next, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul pivots to a beautiful proclamation of the power, the authority, the deity, the death, and the propitiation of Jesus Christ. He also shows how this work of Christ has reconciled believers to God and ends this section with a call to not shift from the gospel that you have heard, of which I, Paul, became a minister. That seems to have been the case that the false teaching in Colossae at this time questioned, at the very least, the sufficiency of Christ's death and his power in the lives of believers. And Paul brilliantly undermines it here by beginning his case with the proclamation of Christ's sufficiency. 
Then in chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul relates his sufferings, his calling from God, his gospel preaching, his shepherding of the flock, and his all-out struggle, including for the Colossians, to bring believers to maturity and assurance in the faith. These verses can seem like a strange interjection between the previous section about the supremacy of Christ and the following section against false teaching, but in reality they're showing Paul's authority as an apostle, as a minister of God, the authority that he had to write the previous section, the authority that he had to write the following section. And it is in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23, that we see Paul finally gets around to confronting the false teaching in Colossae directly. He vividly portrays the false teachers as seeking to take the Colossians captive with philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. And that emptiness is a key word. Because against this emptiness, Paul shows forth the fullness of Christ, his fullness of deity. How by our unity with Christ, we receive his fullness, his benefits, and his spirit. And we see also in Paul how Christ utterly triumphed over the spirits, the other spirits, that the false teachers seem to advocate the worship of. Having shown the emptiness of the false teacher's theology, Paul then goes on to show the futility of their practices, their rules about food and drink, festivals and new moons, asceticism, and worship of angels. He points out how in Christ all of the ceremonial elements of the Old Testament law are done away with and fulfilled in Christ. And how all the superstitions of the Gentile religions are made absurd in the face of the reality of Christ. The Colossians have died to these things, Paul says, and should instead hold fast to Christ as their head. Finally, in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6, having vanquished the false teaching in his writings, Paul turns to how the truths of the Christian faith should manifest themselves in the lives of believers. He first lists the evil practices of the old earthly man that must be cut off by our death in Christ. He then lists the virtues of the new man in Christ, which must be put on, along with how those who are redeemed ought to love one another and worship together. Recognizing that we all have God-given roles in life, Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, before ending the section by encouraging the Colossians to faithful prayer and a life of evangelism toward unbelievers. Throughout the letter up to this point, Paul gives the Colossians, and by extension, all of us as well, a wonderful doctrine of Christ, 
a warning against some of the most dangerous types of false teaching and its antidote in Christ and instructions regarding how we ought to live given our identity in and union with Christ. Then, in verses 7 through the end of the book, at first glance, it seems like the letter stops being relevant for us. As Paul proceeds to list off a bunch of names of people who want to say hello to the Colossians, and so on. And that brings us to our second point, not just a bunch of names. It is common for Paul to include greetings from those who were with him at the time, as he was writing a letter to the church to which he was writing. And this letter to the Colossians is no exception. But often, who is mentioned in the descriptions that are attached have an important meaning that we can miss on our first read-through. The names in verses 7 through 14 can be divided up into three groups. There are five beloved brothers, two redemption stories, and one false friend. In the category of beloved brothers, the first that Paul mentions is Tychicus in verse 7. We do not know much about him apart from Paul's glowing description of him uh, in this verse where he calls him a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And Paul shows enormous trust that goes along with this, this description by sending him not only with a letter to the Colossians, but likely also a letter to Philemon. At this point in history, delivering a letter was not simply like uh, being a postman and dropping it in a mailbox, but it also meant that you would personally guarantee the letter's authenticity, and you were responsible for delivering further messages and reports regarding the sender and what he would want to say to the people who were receiving it. It was, in a sense, to be like a personal ambassador of the letter writer. And Paul entrusts Tychicus with this important task because he wants the Colossians' hearts to be comforted by receiving an update on the situation of Paul as he languishes in a Roman prison. <coughs> it's easy to skip over this, but it is a touching indicator of how deeply the churches of this era cared for each other, that they would be so eager to hear a report regarding someone whom they had likely never met. The second beloved brother is Aristarchus, a wonderful example to us of someone who was not afraid to make sacrifices for the gospel. It doesn't seem to be the case that he was with Paul for all of his journeys, but he was there and was one of the men who was seized along with Paul in Ephesus and nearly killed by the rioters who were chanting uh, about Artemis of the Ephesians, of how these Christians wanted to stop their profitable, idol-making business. Not dissuaded or scared off by that, by, from traveling with Paul and supporting his ministry, Aristarchus went with Paul after his arrest all the way to Rome from Israel, 
of his own free will. He would then, on the way, have almost certainly been shipwrecked with Paul on Malta, and still not scared off. He continued to remain with Paul and seemed to live so closely alongside him as he was imprisoned that the apostle here in verse 10 of our passage calls him his fellow prisoner. Thirdly, Paul mentions in verse 11, Jesus who is called justice. We don't know anything else about this justice, but Paul here mentions that, ju that he is one of only three fellow Jews active in the ministry in Rome. On the one hand, this is volumes about the tragic hardness of heart among many Jews against the gospel, which Paul laments as well in his writings to the Romans. But it also shows how bold, how utterly convinced Justice and the others must have been that Jesus was their long-awaited Savior. So convinced that they were willing to endure the undoubtedly very harsh ostracism that would have followed from their community, from their family, from their friends. Fourthly, Paul speaks glowingly of Epaphras, who we touched on during our overview of the letter earlier. We've already seen how Paul in that first chapter went out of his way to praise Epaphras and show how much they were in alignment. But here Paul takes even more pains to recommend him to the Colossians. He reminds them that Epaphras is one of them, not some foreigner with suspected motivations. He tells them of his struggling for them in prayer. Struggling is meant here in all the intensity of that word. It's a Greek word behind it could also be translated as making every effort or straining. Think of like, if you know the NFL, like the offensive and defensive linemen pushing each against each other as hard as they possibly can. Paul goes even further and describes how he personally can bear witness for him, that is Epaphras, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. It seems that Epaphras was not only ministering to the church in Colossae, but also to these other two churches as well. He was certainly no slacker in his ministry. And what was Epaphras struggling in prayer and working hard for? The same thing that Paul desires for the Colossians, and the opposite of what the false teachers that he was combating desired. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This was a godly minister. This is the sort of man that every pastor should aspire to be. And this is the work that every congregation should expect and desire in their pastor <clears throat> and submit to. The final beloved brother is Luke. As we see in verse 14, none other than the very famous author of the gospel of the same name and as well as of the book of Acts. Having joined Paul just before his first trip to Europe, he was undoubtedly the most faithful of all of Paul's companions. So faithful that in 2 Timothy 
chapter 4, verse 11, in what is widely considered to be Paul's last letter, after he writes about how multiple of his companions have left him to go to other ministries or abandoned him and left him for the world, he could still write, Luke alone is with me. What a testimony of faithfulness in ministry, in life, and in friendship are all of these men. We would all do well to follow their example and to seek out friends and ministers who are like this as well. Next, we have two redemption stories, Onesimus and Mark. In verse 9, Paul calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, meaning one of the Colossians. Onesimus was, of course, the escaped slave who was the subject of Paul's accompanying letter to Philemon. With our modern-day conception of slavery and its evils, it can be hard for us to get our minds around how radical a statement this is by Paul. Escaping slavery was considered a grave breach of the social contract at that time. And it seems, if you read Philemon verse 19, where Paul offers to repay Philemon anything that Onesimus took, that Onesimus had also stolen from Philemon on his way out. But Paul does not just appeal to Philemon in his letter to him to forgive Onesimus, but he exhorts the entire congregation at Colossae to welcome him as a faithful and beloved brother. Was this Paul endorsing escaping from slavery and even theft from masters? I don't think that is the point he is trying to make here, although if you read Philemon, it's clear that Paul does not think highly of slavery. No, what he is doing here is holding forth the repentance and the new and thriving faith of Onesimus and instructing the Colossians to forgive him and to welcome him accordingly. The other redemption story, that of Mark, which you see in verse 10, strikes even closer to home for Paul. We know Mark as the writer of the gospel of the same name, but long before that, he had abandoned his cousin Barnabas, as well as Paul, during one of their missionary journeys, leaving a very sour taste in Paul's mouth. So sour a taste, in fact, that in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, Paul and Barnabas had a bitter disagreement over whether they should take him along on their next journey and ended up splitting up for good. So strongly was Paul's mind set against Mark. Yet here we see Paul, a few years later, telling the Colossians to welcome Mark. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, as Paul is no one left beside him, besides Luke, he pleads with Timothy to send Mark to him because he was very useful. What was behind this redemption, this change in Paul's mind? It may be that it was Peter who rehabilitated him, seeing that he calls him my son in 1 Peter 5.13. 
and that Peter had firsthand experience in what it was like to deny and to betray a spiritual leader and then to be broken by repentance. But regardless of how it happened, Mark clearly repented of his abandonment of Paul, and Paul clearly forgave him. It is a true testimony of the power of forgiveness in the Christian life, and a demonstration that Paul was speaking from experience when asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus. From both Onesimus and Mark, we can take three principles. Are we people who forgive? Are we people who repent of our wrongdoings? And are we people who seek forgiveness from Christ and from those whom we have wronged? A Christian life ought to be marked by such repentance and forgiveness. Let us follow these men's example, brothers and sisters. Lastly, there is the false friend, Demas, whom Paul mentions in verse 14. If we had only this letter and no other following letters from Paul, Demas would have been mentioned in the first section as a faithful man who labored alongside Paul and was there supporting him in his ministry. Unfortunately, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we see that Demas has taken a another very different route. As Paul writes that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. When taken with the stories of Onesimus and Mark, the story of Demas shows that only God can see the heart. A heart that seems hardened beyond redemption, like that of Onesimus, can be softened by the power of the Holy Spirit. A brother who has gone astray like Mark may seem beyond retrieval, but if he truly belongs to Christ, the Holy Spirit will not let him go and will eventually bring him back, encouraging us to never fail in our prayers for wayward brothers and sisters. And an imposter like Demas may embody, embed himself into the church, even doing much for the kingdom and seeming like a model of the Christian life, but then will ultimately fall away. As 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So we have seen that this is not just a list of names, but instead a list of examples. Examples of faithfulness, examples of repentance and forgiveness, and a warning of unfaithfulness. May God use it to encourage us to kingdom work, to a habit of repentance for our faults and forgiveness for the faults of others, and to flee Satan and the temptations of the world so that we might not fall into the same trap as Demas. That brings us to our third and final point, Paul's last instructions. 
In verses 15 through 18, Paul ends his letter by giving a series of final instructions to the church in Colossae. Let's read those verses again together. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read from the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. In verses 15 and 16, Paul shows that it is not just the church in Colossae that he cares for, but also the church in Laodicea, asking for his greetings to be passed on to them as well. He also instructs the Colossians to have this letter read, not just among themselves and their church, but also among the Laodiceans, and that a seemingly now lost letter to the Laodiceans should be read among the Colossians. It seems quite clear from this that Paul cared that these churches stay connected, that they should communicate with each other, exercise oversights over each other, and care for one another. One might even argue that Paul here is being Presbyterian and encouraging the churches to be Presbyterian as well. But the passing around of the letters also shows that Paul's epistles were not, as some liberal theologians and critics like to claim, written solely with the receiving church and context in mind. Paul already had the expectation that these letters that he was writing would be passed around between different churches, that the truths inside them were eternal and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that even though the application might be different for different churches and people, they are real, they are from the Holy Spirit, and they are profitable for all believers throughout history. Continuing on in verse 17, Paul gives a stern charge that the Colossian congregation should pass on to a certain Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. From Philemon, verse 2, we see that Archippus seems to be Philemon's son, maybe even living in his household, and therefore probably a relatively young man. It also seems clear that he had a calling to some kind of ministry, probably pastoral ministry. Some commentators speculate that Archippus may have been the interim pastor in Colossae during Epaphras' absence, which, combined with his youth, may explain the need for Paul's admonition. It's possible that Archippus was facing difficulties dealing with the congregation and was hesitant because of his age. And that Paul's instruction was a brilliant way of encouraging the congregation in submission and Archippus in boldness in ministry at the same time. Regardless, the principles here are clear. A man who has a calling from God is not at liberty to neglect that call. No matter how difficult it might be, 
or how unequipped or insufficient he might feel, he must obey the call of God. And the congregation does rightly when they encourage him to it and hold him accountable to it. Finally, Paul ends with a short but striking statement saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Writing the last line of the letter with his own hand as opposed to dictating through a scribe like the rest of the letter, Paul asked the Colossians to remember his chains. Is this a plea for pity? I don't think it is. Most commentators agree that it's two different things that Paul is doing. Firstly, it is a mark of his authority. With his imprisonment for Christ being a mark of privilege and faithfulness in the radical upside-down social hierarchy that came through Christianity, where the weak come before the powerful. Secondly, it is a plea for prayer. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he did not think of himself as being too good to ask his fellow believers for prayer. He craved their prayer, and he believed passionately in its power. May that serve as a model for us that we never think of ourselves as being too good or think of our situation as being too terrible to ask for, to crave for the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul ends with a simple phrase, grace be with you. None of this sermon None of this letter, none of the entire Bible would be of any worth for any of us apart from the grace that we receive in faith through Jesus Christ. It is because of this grace, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that every glorious theological truth that Paul expounds in this letter is wonderfully true. It's because of this grace we are able to cast off the evil deeds that Paul condemns and able to put on the virtues that he commends. Because of this grace we can have real beautiful unity and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ loving and caring for them and being loved and cared for like the beloved brothers did for Paul. And it is because of this grace that we can walk through this life with joy, despite all its pain, its suffering, its temptations and trials, knowing that at the end we will receive the crown of eternal life and enjoy communion with God and with all the saints forever and ever.
if you are hearing about this grace as an outsider, as one who desires it but does not yet have it, you can have it today. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in Him alone as your only hope in life and in death. Don't put it off to another day, to a more convenient hour, for none of us know how many days or hours we have left in this life. Come to Christ today. He will take you gladly. The very angels in heaven will rejoice. And this grace that Paul mentions here will be yours forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the incredible reality of grace. That you, the almighty, all-knowing, perfect and holy creator of all things, who had every right to put us all to eternal death for our wicked rebellion against you, that you decided to show us grace, to show us mercy by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in our place and to die in our place. He might take on our sins and our righteousness might be, and his righteousness might be accredited to us, that we might be united with him and look forward to eternity with you. Lord, we pray that you would imprint this reality deeply into our hearts, that you would give us a love greater and greater every day for yourself and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.